Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. We plunge into our work tonight, uh, which is uh, called Around the Jewish World, I guess, in 80 Minutes. Um, or something like that, and I'm covering the period over here. This is something I actually want to do last week, but because I expected the Radowskis to be away, so I, I flipped it. A little did they know that the United States government closed all the national parks. <laughs> the uh, uh, fact is that uh, we're dealing with a very uh, specific period, the early 50s, I guess you'd call it, and um, in the early 50s, uh, we're focusing here in, in this uh, series about Israel primarily, of course, but Israel's part of the Jewish world. Where was Kalal Yisrael physically in uh, the early 50s? And I'm not just interested in your memories and when you were growing up, that's important too. But overall, let's, let's take a what we call a bird's eye view and look at the Jewish people. Can we do that? Uh, we're a very unusual people, of course, in which we're scattered all over the world. Uh, sometimes we're able to stay in contact with the other. Sometimes we're not able to stay in contact with the other. We are of such a, na- uh, a nature that sometimes we have contact with Jews who live far away, but we wouldn't dare talk to the person living next door to us, you know. Not in Baltimore, of course, but elsewhere. And <laughs> here, all relatives and neighbors get along. We know that. Um, but seriously, when you look at the, uh, the, the, the Jewish situation in any snapshot year, if somebody could do that for 2013. It would actually be very interesting. Where do the Jews live and where do they no longer live? Okay? Um, what, under what kind of conditions do they live, a freedom or otherwise? Uh, what is their religious situation? It's, 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 we, we like to study ourselves, and, and why not? Um, if we... Uh, just take a look, as you see over here very briefly, I asked Howard to put up a map or two from one line. These are pictures of how many Jews were there in the, in the Second World War, how many were left when it's over. Let's take a look at the next picture over here. Uh, the, I'm just sharing this with you very briefly to give you an idea that obviously the impact of the Second World War leaves huge demographic changes and geographical changes, does it not, on the Jewish people. Let me get into that specifically. The Jewish world in the 50s had six components. Uh, number one, Israel, right? Obviously, the U.S., England, the British Commonwealth, right? Thanks, Aaron. Uh, the, the Western Union, uh, excuse me, Western Europe. Uh, <laughs> I was talking about something. Uh, but Western Europe, which is a separate set of communities. Eastern Europe, obviously, uh, with a very large population, as we'll see in a minute. The Muslim world and South America. Now, Israel, of course, in the years 52 to 56, is filling up, which means other regions are draining out. Israel does not grow by natural growth. No, it's not by having a baby boom. Israel grows, they don't. Israel grows by a mass aliyah. We talked about this before. Actually, the uh, secular government in Israel, uh, especially with the small apartments policy and so forth, was against large families, even though it seems counterintuitive to many. But nevertheless, this was, believe it or not, this was the policy under Ben-Gurion and Eshkel and others still is today. They're not looking for a very large. They embrace the Western model. If Israel populations to fill up, they always say, make aliyah, that is, the people should come elsewhere. In the 50s, this certainly was happening. Um, the two main places out of which Jews drain to come to Israel in the 50s is uh, the Islamic world, of course. Think about entire Jewish communities who will, in the course of the 50s, relocate to Israel, uh, Iraq, uh, a quarter, a third more from Iran. In those years, almost everybody in Yemen, and so forth. 
So in other words, you're having something that's of historic proportions because these are communities that were there for at least a thousand years. Uh, if you take Yemen, it's two thousand years. They're in one place, and then they're not. And it'll happen recently, in the late 40s. The Jews have been in Bavel how long? I don't have to tell you, know that. And then they're not, fortunately. But they, you know, the 115 out of 120,000, pick them and go to Israel in 51. And so you have these really mass kind of movements of Jewish demography and Jewish geography is radically changing in very interesting ways. Um, and the other one is Eastern Europe, as I'll talk about a little bit later, but we forget. I'm not talking about the USSR, because they don't let anybody out. But some of the other countries let out significant numbers, especially two of the countries with the largest, ironically, the largest Jewish populations, Poland and Romania. Even after three and how many million Jews were killed in Poland, there were still 100,000, 200,000 left. We forget this. And many of them, it's not a so well-known story, it's not a hidden story, many of them will be able to get out from Poland in the 50s uh, to go make Aliyah. It's a kind of an interesting story. The communist government there permits it. Romania, bribed Romania, and so they will sell <laughs> you know, for $10,000 every single Jew, but they will. And you, know, you see changes happening in the situation of Jewish people. Uh, these are the only two regions, the Islamic world and the uh, Eastern Europe, in which the Jews are actually in physical danger one kind or another. Everywhere else, the Jews have, re, re, have geographically situated themselves in regions of freedom, which is something that's rather new in Jewish history. Something rather new in Jewish history. Throughout most of Jewish history, you know from me and from other places, uh, the Jews have had to live under conditions of uh, discrimination, to put it nicely, and sometimes much worse. True, Jews historically have been uh, persecuted or suffered uh, dis legal disabilities, of a wide variety. And it's only in the last 200 years, anywhere, that the Jews started to get some kind of an easement of that. And it's really only in the last 200 years that Jews started to get something that was unthinkable once upon a time, which is civil rights. And it's only since the Second World War that the vast majority of Kali Yisrael who were able to relocate themselves in zones of freedom, which gives the post-World War period a rather interesting feature. Now, you have to exclude Russia, of course, which is big. But think about, I'll just give you an example of what I'm talking about. The Hasidim did not want to move out of Eastern Europe, even in the early 20th century, after all the sufferings in the First World War. Why not? Go to America. Go to South Africa. Go somewhere else. You know that to live, this is before Hitler. You know to live in those countries of Eastern Europe, there's profound discrimination, tremendous anti-Semitism, outbreaks of violence, etc. Why don't you move? No, we don't move. You understand? I always was in Bells. I'm going to stay in Bells. Wait here till Russia comes. Not after World War II. Agreed? Then, even the Hasidim, very die-hard to, to stay where they are, move. And well, who can blame them? Who wants to stay under Stalin? And so you'll end up in this funny kind of uh, profile in which Hasidism re re relocates itself primarily uh, in New York City, greater area. <laughs> Places like that. Of course, in Israel, too. But, you know, what a difference from Bells to Manhattan, for example, or Satmar, for example, to Manhattan. It's quite remarkable. And this is a feature, a unique feature, of the post-World War II period. Um, the, D the DPs, in other words, by the time you get to 1952, 3, 4, 5, 6, are no longer. Uh, they move, and they move to free regions. Who would move to a non-free region? Agreed? So I bet you there are many people in this audience, or whatever, relatives, DPs, who move to America, or places like that. Where else are you supposed to go? Okay? And so... It's a time, you know, you think of the 50s as Ozzy and Harriet, all the rest of it. No, not for Jews. It's a time of, of tremendous flux and changes and moving around and things like that. Um, the USA is unique in the post-war period 
and having what we call a reform and conservative Judaism movement, which flourished actually in the 50s. This does not exist elsewhere. It's kind of interesting. Um, in the United States, for various historical reasons, there grew in American Jewry from the bottom up a big movement of reform Judaism in the 19th century, and in the 20th century, a big movement of conservative Judaism. Uh, it wasn't brought in from abroad, maybe some of the people started, but it's, 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 a, it's an American phenomenon. You don't have this elsewhere, okay? And uh, that colors the uh, post-war history, pre-war and post-war history of the Jews around the world in all kinds of different places. In other free countries, for the most part, such religious movements never developed. Um, it's really interesting. I'll explain what I mean. Uh, take England or France or Italy or any places we've been uh, you, that you hear about. What happened when the rise of modernity in the 19th century was that the orthodoxy, for better or worse, veered sharply to the left to accommodate everybody, and therefore there was no real need to set up a separate kind of theological movement. Instead, you just had what, you, what we would, it's not exactly what you call modern orthodox, modern, modern, modern orthodox, okay? Um, but it's true. Uh, so again, there didn't develop in France, for example, which you can't say all the Jews there were Shomer Shabbos, the opposite, but they're never, they never felt the need to try to express in a, in a separate Jewish theological identity or, or denominational sense. You're Jewish. Some are more religious, some are less religious. Sometimes I, I go to Shul, sometimes I go to Shul. But when I go to Shul, it's an Orthodox Shul, you know? The Shul may be one that modernizes to some degree or another. Uh, real from people may object to it. and you know, Those are the, the things that happen. But nevertheless, it's powerful. And as a result, um, what you have is this kind of non-denominational uh, feature of uh, Jew Jewry around the world, not in America, or Jewry around the world, which, which therefore registers whatever differences there are among the Jews in terms of what they practice and what they don't. Not any other kind of a, of a philosophy or ideology, but it's, it's kind of interesting in that way. Um, a perfect example what I'm talking about is uh, go, for example, I, mean, I just thought of this, go to Italy. Here's the famous synagogue in, in, in Florence. Some have been there. Uh, it's the model for all the Moorish architecture synagogues built around the world, even today. You might recognize some of the people there. And it, anyway, the point is, the point is that that's how uh, many synagogues in Baltimore and elsewhere were built. You know, the Moorish architecture. It's an Orthodox shul. They have an organ. Now they used to. They don't have today, but they did. How's an Orthodox shul have an organ? All the rest of it. In Italy, that's what they did. Meaning, this is what the public built. Like the the, the, the subject. You know, the Balabatim want something more modern. All the rest of it. And uh, but they didn't invent a conservative Judaism. They didn't invent a reform Judaism. They didn't invent a reconstruction Judaism. They're just a little, of a, you might say, a little bit of a modified Orthodox Judaism, which, by the way, is a powerful significance, especially in the post-World War II period, because the difference between having a separate denomination as opposed to a weak Orthodoxy is that once in a while, you have what you call a tris hamesim. Sometimes there's a revival of religious sentiment for one reason or another. Sometimes there's a revival to the right, as the expression goes. Sometimes new immigrants will move into the place. Um, who will now join the shul and want to change things here and there. And that is what happens in, in the post-Second World War period. So today, you don't have an organ. I mean, I, I was once in Livorno uh, in the trip last year, and uh, they have a nice modern shul there because the old one, the fancy one, was bombed out in World War II. And while the lady was speaking, uh, it's a cavernous a synagogue, while the lady was speaking, I, I looked, and the you know, bim in the front and all this, there was something marble behind, and I thought it's where you duchen, where the kalana duchen, because I'm a Cohen, and you do it in the great synagogue, you know, that fancy... I go behind it. No, it's in the back behind the arm code. It's just the organ. No, 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 no. They don't use it anymore. So what's it there for? Maybe for weddings or something like that. You know, but they don't use it for Shabbos. Why? Sentiment has changed. 
both the Italian Jews who felt that strongly are gone. The new Jews who show up usually are Sephardim from Libya and, and Iran and places like that. Such Italian Jews today who want to go to Shul ever are obviously going to be more religious anyway. So yeah, forget about it, you know. See, but this, this is what happens in a very broad way. You only see the beginnings of the beginnings of this in the early 50s. This something happens as time goes on. But it's a definite trend in European uh, Jewry and elsewhere because there's not a separate denomination. You understand? There's not something where they argue this is the, the, the way that it's supposed to be. They just It's more of a pragmatic kind of thing. So it's kind of interesting in that way. There was a general universal trend of orthodoxy in those years to move to the left to prevent defections to non-orthodox groups. That is a basic feature of Western orthodoxy in the 18 and 1900s. Right? A basic feature of Western orthodoxy, uh, England, right? France, um, uh, Belgium, Holland, uh, 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 Italy, uh, British Commonwealth, a lot of times. The shows were, you know, you, you, you play around with the architecture here and there to try to keep this uh, well. In, in America, this used to be called modern orthodoxy. Now, that's a term that changes every 10 years. Uh, no, I, no, but it, it really is. You know, when you mean modern orthodoxy today, it's not identical to what it was when I was growing up. You understand? But, uh, but nevertheless, it's out there, as you know. The whole phenomenon of what we call modern orthodoxy represents exactly what I just said. It was a broad trend throughout the West to try to, you know, modify and tweak and play here, right or wrong, and give in here, add there add ceremonies, do some English reading, this and that and the other, in order to prevent defections from orthodoxy or simply to bring people to show. In cities like Baltimore, uh, we will all recall, the architectural manifestation of this was the bim in the front, the lomachitza and the microphone. That's what happened. That's, that, that, that's what happened in Baltimore. Uh, yeah, similar things in Europe and the British Commonwealth. In, in England, which is uh, one of the largest communities after the Holocaust, it's 450,000. Uh, they're not today. Now they're down back to 250,000 or something like that. But they, in the post-World War period, that's when England was at its uh, largest Jewish population ever. The early 50s see the beginnings of modern trends which characterize Jewish life. And uh, I would call the disintegration of the center, uh, the slow disintegration center, and the strengthening of the extremes, of the left and the right. Okay? This is a basic feature of the post-war Jewish history, is it not? The center is kind of, little by little, gone, little by little, and the left and the right are invigorated. Uh, the left means, obviously, people move away from Judaism, away the kind of things you read about now in the Pew Report, you know, the, 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 the increasing intermarriage, of course, and um, uh, the identification with, not, with non-Jewish causes, all the sort of the, the, the increasing, increasing level of Jewish ignorance. And then you see the right, right? Where people are moving more and more uh, religiously, you know, yeshivish, as, as they would say. And these are features of the disintegration of the center. Which, which means that the 50s see the beginning of that trend, although it wasn't, so, you know, looking back with a perspective, as we, we can do, that's what you always have to do in history, you can, you can look back, uh, you see that it kind of starts after the Second World War, okay? Um, in Baltimore as well as elsewhere. And uh, the, look, the increasing assimilation and intermarriage is, is something that starts to rise slowly but surely in the 50s. The numbers are, you know, before the 50s, it's, it's, it's a, definitely in single digits and not even high ones. After the, starting with the 50s, it starts to get around 8%, 10%, and all that, and then, as you know, it has never stopped. It also sees the same thing in England. Uh, the vast majority of the kids are uh, going to regular schools, and uh, by the 40s and 50s, they're moving out and away. Thank you very much. I wouldn't say they're all Ed Miliband's, you know, the father's not a communist, but they're all, but they're all moving in that sort of direction in which you have 
uh, nothing to do with anything Jewish or less and less. And yet, at the same time, you also see Gates head <laughs> starting to flourish, which is all the way on the right. Isn't that true? And that's also a very powerful trend in British Jewry down till today. Okay? So the same kind of trends that we see um, in the West general are repeated in Britain and America and Canada and, and, uh, and over there. The right word trend is uh, not as large as the left word trend, but, it's, uh, but, uh, but of course it has greater significance because by definition, if this group is marrying out and leaving and this group isn't, that tells you what the long-term demographic of future is. Uh, the chief rabbinate in England, very interesting, moves slowly, slowly but surely, slowly but surely in the 50s to the right. Uh, the old United Synagogue was Chief Rabbi Hertzman Hertzsitter and Robert Whaley Cohn, who was the uh, head of, the, the lay head of the United Synagogue. He's, he's the, the president of the presidents. <laughs> you, know, you think about that. You ever, you ever heard of a shul president? You know, you have in Baltimore, they have such things. So he says, you know, you ever shul president? So he's the president, but he's the head of the whole business. He was the head of Shell Oil. He was a multimillionaire. He was a big deal and all the rest of it. And uh, Rabbi Hertz, I want to tell you something, was the first graduate of the Jewish Theological Seminary, was a from guy. And, uh, and he had his hands full. He was the chief rabbi from 1913 to 1946. So he was there in the teens, in the 20s, and the 30s, and the early 40s. And Robert Whaley Cohn and the Balabatim are always trying to push to the left, to the left, to the left, right? And they basically want the United States to go conservative, as we would call it in America. And Hertz is always fighting and screaming. Back, I mean fighting and screaming. It was said of him that he was always willing to pursue the paths of peace when all other paths were closed, you know? The, uh, but, 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 but he had to, right? And what I'm trying to say is the general trend at that time was the pressure was coming from the rich and powerful Balabatim who want shuls with organs, they want shuls with, mix, with mixed choirs, and they do get them. And they want shuls with mixed seating and all this kind of stuff, all under the rubric of Orthodox, as I said before. And Rabbi Hertz, you know, he, he little by little he gave in here, gave where he had to, he gave in, where he, and, and where he didn't have to, he didn't give in. But starting with the end of the uh, Second World War, in particular the 50s, you see it's a new day. Uh, the new chief rabbi is uh, Brody, and uh, the head over here is uh, the new uh, head of the um, United Synagogue after Robert Whaley Cohn died was Ewan Montague. You may have heard of him. By the way, isn't that a Jewish name? <laughs> right? I just got to tell you that. His father was Samuel Montague. Well, let me finish. His father was Samuel Montague, who was a very wealthy banker and a member of parliament and the biggest Shomer Shabbos. It's funny. It's, I, I get it. But nevertheless, he was a friend with Gladstone and all the rest of it. He had a palace and so forth. And he was a Shomer's house. So where did he get a name like Samuel Montague? No, his name was Montague Samuel. <laughs> his name was Samuel. But then when he got to Parliament, he figured it sounds better to say <laughs> Samuel Montague. So not only did he have to know who was who, but what was their name before they switched and in what order. Um, so his, his kids were now, his, his daughter tried to start Reform Judaism in, 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 in England. And there's a long story to it. Remember the famous movie and novel, The Man Who Never Was? Had he fooled the Germans? With the, with, the, with the dead body. He's the one who did it. He was the guy. Right? Notice he was, he was an officer in British intelligence in World War II. I mean, a, a commander in the Navy. And he figured out the shtick, the trick that fooled the Germans because the Allies were going to land in Sicily and they didn't want anybody to know they were landing in Sicily. So he arranged that a dead guy should, by accident, fall off a ship and the Germans should find him. He should have secret papers on him with the wrong information and all that. So, in other words, here's a guy who's, who had a distinguished career, but not a distinguished Jewish career. But I want to tell you a funny story. I read from his, uh, later on he, he signed, uh, he joined the uh, conservative uh, show later in life and all that. And the rabbi wrote in the obituary, he said, he was a funny guy, Shabbos he didn't keep, kosher he didn't keep, shotness he kept. <laughs> no, 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 I'm serious. He said he had, he had the fanciest tailor in London, I forget which one it was. 
you know, he's a millionaire, paints a day in London, and the tailor, he never told me about it. The tailor said he had a standing order, all the um, cu- custom tailored suits and all that kind of stuff. Uh, one thing to be definitely sure, she no, no trace of shamas. So, I don't know. You know, it's a, it's a funny world out there. Uh, here's the point. He's no longer pushing to the left. He's just trying to hold things as they are. You see? It's not the same thing. And he is definitely not going to the left. And he, Rabbi Cheskel Abrams, is a famous person, is the head of the basin. He becomes a very potent force in the direction of, of where the United Synagogue based Jewry is going in those years. It doesn't very much look like a reform rabbi because he wasn't, you know. Uh, the, it, it, it's, it's a trend of the times. Um, things are moving away. And so the type of synagogue that I'm talking about basically no longer exists. There might be one or two left. I'm not an expert in British Jewry, but most of them uh, switched. So the ones that had the mixed city is no longer. The one that had the, uh, the, the organ is no longer. And so, you know why? Because the children of the people that wanted their children are nothing. They, they don't, they're, they're intermarried. They, you know, they're, they're not interested in the synagogue life whatsoever. And so you don't have that same constituency. But it's, again, it's part of a general trend that goes on over there. But I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture. Uh, there's tremendous assimilation in Britain, which continues down till today. They didn't go from 450 to, to 300, 250, you know, like for nothing. Okay, it is what it is. Uh, by the way, I googled uh, Robert Whaley Cohn, just to give an example, who I'm familiar with. He was a famous person in his day. Uh, comes from a famous Czech family. His great-great-great-grandfather was in the time of the Nerd of Yehuda. He was like a famous expert at the Rambam, you know. Time. So I, I looked, if there's Robert Whaley Cohn, if I could get a picture going there. All I get is Sam Whaley Cohn, Louis Whaley, this, that, and the other. They're high aristocrats now. Uh, they're all intermarried. They're with a high-class set. And the uh, claim to fame of Sam Whaley Cohn, who's no longer Jewish, is his grandson, no longer Jewish. The, he's the shachan for the, for the Prince of England and uh, Kate Middleton. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you know, they meet at the same horse racing club and this, that, and the other. And uh, times have changed. It's, it, in other words, there's this, but there's also what I just told you. And I told you, the center uh, disintegrates and the trends move to the right and to the left. Um, but I repeat, Britain will not have a significant, certainly in the 50s, uh, uh, any kind of reform movement or conservative movement, except by German immigrants who've run away from Germany to settle England. So if they're, not, if they're used to having a reform congregation in the old country, they'll transplant it over to London, but it's not a native kind of thing in a large uh, phenomenon, and certainly not in, in those years. Politically, it's a golden age for British Jewry. It's the uh, largest uh, Jewish community in, uh, in, in Europe, outside of Russia anyway, four and f- close to half a million of complete equality and all the rest of it. And so it's a, a fun, interesting time. Does this have to do with the policy of England towards Israel? That's something we'll deal with later. Right? That's international politics. That's a different business. But if you're Jewish and you're living in England or Britain in the 1950s, it, you know, all, um, most of the barriers are down. It's, it's kind of interesting. What about the British Commonwealth? Canada and Australia doubled their population from the DPs. Isn't that interesting? That means that's, that's a significant uh, change in the profile over there. Uh, Canada, I say again, and Australia, uh, they double the pub because there's a, a, there's a pretty darn large um, immigration of Jews from Europe, from the wreckage of Hitler uh, to Canada and Australia. They wouldn't let anybody in during the war, but by the 50s, things are changing and different attitudes, and they do get in. By the way, plenty of Nazis get in also. Plenty of right-wing uh, you know, war criminals get in too. But, but so do the Jews. It's, uh, and you have there the same cultural and religious trends as I just described for Britain. Um, the, the one thing that is certainly unprecedented and characteristic of the 50s and the post-war, you have a Hasidic immigration. 
believe me, in Australia and Canada prior to the Second World War, is no Hasidim, right? If you're Jewish, you blend in. Uh, and yet it's a new reality. Uh, it's politically incorrect to criticize Jews who dress Jewish in the 1950s if you live in these countries, and it happens. The most unusual case of the British Commonwealth was South Africa, uh, which we had 100,000 Jews at the time I'm talking about in the 50s, 100,000, which is a lot, and it's a country with two ruling groups. Most people, I have some South Africans here, but most people aren't. The, uh, the two groups that, that had traditionally been the rulers of South Africa are the British and the Afrikaners, which are not the same thing. And a lot of people think one's Dutch and one's English, and they fought, remember, they fought the Boer War with each other, I mean. <laughs> So uh, that's where they started the concentration camps, by the way. The British invented the concentration camps as a tool in the war against the Boers in, in, in uh, 100 years ago, 110 years ago. So there's a lot of uh, blood and uh, things out there, but uh, originally South Africa was Dutch. British took it over, they conquered it in around 1800 thereabouts, and, um, and then the British started moving in. It's not so simple because both of them, it's, they're the only white people there, but on the other hand, they don't totally get along with each other. On the other hand, there's a lot that they have in common, so it's kind of a funny uh, kind of a mix. Uh, prior to the Great Depression, there were no restrictions on immigration, and there was no discrimination in politics in South Africa. It's kind of interesting. Notice it was British style. And um, so tens of thousands of Lithuanian Jews, Lithuaks, uh, moved there a century ago. They're the only surviving Lithuaks. Right? In Lithuania, my father's in Lithuania, very few people. Uh, there was 120,000 Jews in Lithuania, 125,000 Jews in Lithuania, and I would easily say 100,000 got killed. You understand? I remember this statistic, which I've shared with you before, in Latvia, which is also kind of Lithuanian, it's next door, not one child survived the Second World War. Isn't that amazing? It's a terrible statistic. Hitler killed every single kid in Latvia. Okay, so this is the place where the Holocaust was felt at its fullest, uh, Eastern Europe and all the rest of it. And so the Jews from Lithuania moved to America, and the Jews from Lithuania moved to South Africa are the only ones around. In America, they got blended with everybody else. In South Africa, since the vast majority are Lithuanians, so therefore, yeah, it's the only place where it's still uh, left over there. Um, so it's a kind of a funny kind of a, a, of a community. Uh, it's a strange hashkoch, we'll say. When the Hitler era arises, the Great Depression Hitler era, so basically um, what happens is that uh, this puts anti-Semitic pressure um, into the situation. There are good Afrikaners, and there are bad ones, like everywhere else. Uh, the, 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 the famous leader of uh, South Africa, General Smuts, who was the prime minister very often, were pro-Jewish, or let's put it this way, relatively pro-Jewish. He didn't love Jew, but compared to the others, especially coming from an Afrikaner, he was Jewish. I told this story before. He met Rabbi Hertz, when he visited, Chief Rabbi Hertz, when he visited South Africa in the 20s, I think, and he said, Chief Rabbi, he says, you may be the Chief Rabbi, but I've dedicated more synagogues than you by a mile because any time in the 10s or 20s or 30s, you know, somebody made a shul in South Africa because there are all these Jews moving there, they always invite the prime minister and, you know, and he's, he's polite enough to come and all the rest of it. You have that, but on the other hand, you've got bad ones too. There was uh, pro-Nazi types and pro-Nazi... Let's, let's put it this way. If you're an Afrikaner who is... Uh, uh, eventually the type is going to set up the apartheid system and all the rest of it, and you hear there's a guy called Hitler who advocates the supremacy of the white race. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not exactly something you're unsympathetic to. You get what I'm saying? That doesn't mean they're Nazis exactly, but on the other hand, they don't hear what's that bad about it. And uh, in the 30s especially, there was a lot of movement to strip the Jews of their civil rights, to make parliamentary investigations of how many Jews are there, doctors and lawyers and that sort of thing. It wasn't so simple. So it wasn't your typical British type of uh, colony in, in that regard. Um, 
as I mentioned before in the introduction, it's for that reason, because it was such a strong presence of the Afrikaners, many of whom, not like him, many of whom uh, sympathized with the Germans, they couldn't have a draft in the Second World War because there'd be riots. And so they only had volunteering. Um, in 1948, now forget the, the war, South Africa joined the Second World War inside of Britain, 100,000 or whatever, 200,000 fought for the Allies, all that is true. Um, and then World War II is over. And now what? In 1948, the same year Israel became a state, and South Africa, the Afrikaners, finally got their political act together and they got a majority in parliament. They had free elections, and they won a majority in parliament. As soon as they made a majority in parliament, as you may know, they set up official legal apartheid system, which means that there's two sets of laws, depending on your race. One for white people, one for black people. We know what about uh, He's the main guy. It was Jordania Milan, uh, was the leader of the African Party. Before the Second World War and during the Second World War, he's always talking against the Jews. Once the war was over and the Allies won, then he changes, you know, you can play this fiddle, and if you want, you can play that fiddle. And um, no, no, this is a very important part of the story. The Afrikaners are very wary of looking like Nazis in the post-war period. This would undercut their international legitimacy at any level. I mean, people like Truman hated the, the, the apartheid regime because this is like Hitler or something like that. So uh, the Afrikaner government, the South African government, has uh, dancing on eggs that they should still be part of the United Nations, that they should still be part of the international community. Remember, they were considered a part of the free world, and therefore, uh, it's bad enough you have to deal with anti-black rhetoric, ditch the anti-Jewish stuff. Okay? And they do. And, you know, you can always find within your tradition uh, pro-Jewish things and anti-Jewish things. They emphasize the pro-Jewish things. As a matter of fact, uh, Milan and people like that will develop a kind of funny philo-Semitism, and this is going to sound strange when I'm about to tell you, but the first person to visit the state of Israel after they came, the first foreign head of state to visit the state of Israel after 1948 was Milan. <laughs> okay? Now, Ben-Gurion wasn't happy about that, anyway, you know, because they said, great, you know, who's the first guy that comes over here to head of the party? But it's true. You understand? And um, indeed, throughout its history, and I'll develop this a little more uh, later in the series, Israel and South Africa will be strange bedfellows because in, in, in many respects, if you could just take that apartheid thing out of the way, uh, they would get along very well and they, and they complement each other and they want to do trade and, and all this kind of stuff. And South Africa was totally willing to help Israel in many areas and Israel desperately needs this. And yet, you know, you got that big white elephant or black elephant on the table. And what do you do about that? No, I'm serious, you know. And, and, and what, do you do, what do you do about that? Um, the Afrikaners, after 1948, want the Jews to be co-opted as part of the white minority ruling class. And they kind of were. Because if you're Jewish, and you live down there, and you are white, so there's no, you get all the white laws, not the black laws. So all doors are open to you. And, you know, it's a, I mean, you could ask people. You know, it's a good life, so to speak. Um, the South African uh, regime has no problem at all with the intense Zionism of South African Jewry, as I just explained to you. You know, Milan was the first guy to Israel. And the guys after that, if you're the Dutch Reformed Churches, which, which is what they uh, are, which is the religion down there, they have a very strong kind of uh, Christian Zionism uh, within their prayers. After all, if you're Christian, you pray about Jerusalem and Zion and this and that. And you, you can interpret it in a lot of different ways. Um, the Jews um, are not comfortable and they're too comfortable. That's the stories that I've been in the, in the 40s and 50s and 60s. You know, they, they, they are comfortable because they're part of the privileged group, but they're uncomfortable being part of a country 
in which there's such profound discrimination, where if you're Jewish, you're kind of supposed to be against the discrimination and say, how do you work that out? Um, and so in the 50s, um, in the 1950s, um, the Jews do not rock the boat. Uh, they just go along. They're happy to have their own life and synagogues and Jewish, uh, you know, uh, um, set of uh, institutions and a highly developed, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, life over there. And, um, and uh, what do you call it, there, there's no impediments whatsoever in sending money to Israel. South African Jews express their Jewishness, among other ways, very powerfully through Zionism, through getting involved in Israel. Believe me, if Ben-Gurion and the Malpai Party hadn't been committed to a socialist policy of the government domination of the economy that we spoke about before, and I will again, the South African Jews by themselves, I mean this, this is not an exaggeration, South African Jews themselves in 49, 50, 51, selling us, let us come over, just get out of the way, we'll set up businesses over here, we'll build a whole city of Ashkelon from our own money, we'll set up enterprises and, and factories and so forth. And you had a ton of guys down there who owned businesses and noticed they were hands-on practical business people and we have international contacts and we'll fix up the economy and they could have done it except that the Mapai party was committed as they say they were afraid that any other group outside of them should gain the control of the economic life or have too powerful and independent voice in economic life because we know that a powerful voice in the economy ultimately leads to a powerful voice in the politics and so they wanted to have an absolute lock shot down place in the economy. So Israel was economically retarded for uh, at least 20, 30 years. Uh, this is for sure, uh, because they didn't, because they never took these kind of offers up. Because all during the 50s and the 60s, um, lots of people in South Africa, I'm not even touching America and Canada, right? I'm just talking about South Africa alone. You had the money and the know-how if they would get out of the way and leave them alone to build it up and they, and they, and they didn't want to let them to. But so I say, it's uh, funny in that regard, this is the chief rabbi. He's the only guy who protests against the apartheid. Eventually, they basically, yeah, uh, Chief Rabbi Rabinowitz, he uh, was a little bit too controversial. He was a, a Jabotinsky type, a Begin type, and it's famous that he at one of the big rallies uh, against the British government's anti-Zionist policy, he had medals from the First World War, whatever, and he threw them down, and you don't do that over there, and he eventually left the country and made Aliyah. He's the only voice. You understand? Everybody else just said, just be quiet and go along. We're not saying this is Jewish. The Jewish rabbis made it clear, all of them, that racial discrimination is not part of the Torah. It isn't. Agreed? You know, we don't, we don't believe, as part of Judaism, that there should be discrimination against people in terms of what the color of their skin are. We don't have anything like that. Okay? So, all the rabbis made clear this is not a Jewish thing whatsoever. This has to do with the politics of South Africa. And now, what's for tea? You know? Um, well, that, that's how it goes. Unusually, I would say, South Africa, especially in the 50s still, is the one place where the center still survives. Right? It's a little bit of an exception, certainly in the 50s and 60s, to the trends I described about in the rest of the Western world, in which the center disintegrates and the left and the right get accelerated. And it's interesting. Uh, hence, both extremes, left and right, are rather weak in the 50s. There's not so much Shmir Shabbos or from schools, but there's also not a lot of intermarriage. It's interesting. It's kind of an oasis of traditionalism, which was take advantage. That's why the Panavijarov used to go there starting in the 40s and the 50s and do very well because there was a, there's a lot of traditionalism and he was very good at appealing to people's traditionalism. You understand? Uh, he, 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 of course, he was the one who goes out saying, but he knew how to, first of all, he knew how to speak their language. He was from Lithuania. He was with a funny Lithuanian accent and they loved that kind of stuff down there. And he stressed, he says, you know, some are more, practice more, some practice less, but keep up the Yiddishkeit, I mean the Yiddishkeit in the sense of a strong Jewish feeling, and uh, 
you know, you, you make, there's no intermarriage. This is all, all very, very good. And um, it's emblematic over there. I mean, he was unusually successful um, and attractive in, in, in South Africa, which, which, which makes it different than the other communities. Um, now, I want to make it very important over here. It's important to keep in mind that in none of these places is there any kind of Jewish scholarship or religious or secular very strong. The Jewish world I'm describing, especially in the 50s, is a desert, intellectually speaking. Of course there are exceptions, and of course there's a tiny group of intellectuals. But we're talking the, the, the second half of the 20th century, which is kind of unique, sadly, in that there's never been a period in Jewish history in which so many Jews out there knew so little about Judaism. So few Jews in, in, in the second half of the 20th century had an idea what a Hebrew letter is. And if they did, it's only the most basic level. Um, so few Jews out, we've never had a period in history in which so few Jews knew nothing about uh, Jewish history and culture, let alone uh, the, the, the Torah, uh, the Chumash, uh, the Tanakh, obviously the Gemara, the Halacha, and all that. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a vast wasteland over there. And uh, this is uh, unprecedented. Uh, this is one of the reasons for the trends that we see over here. In, in historic times, in older times, there may not be a big scholar, but every, the, the level of popular scholarship, what people knew generally, what they picked up at home and elsewhere, much higher. Okay? Um, we're so used to it today that we don't expect anything different. But as a historian, I'm just sharing with you that this is new. Um, just to give you one example I'm talking about, even though this is at the level of Jewish culture. It used to be everybody spoke Yiddish. I could read Yiddish in your newspapers and things like that. That introduces a certain Jewish element in, in your life. I'm not even talking about the religious side. A, a heavy Jewish content which isn't there among the children and the grandchildren, correct? That alone, by itself, bespeaks it. When I was young, they were still trying to fight the, uh, in TA places like they are still trying to fight the Battle of Yiddish. But that's a lost battle. But the reason is not only because that's the only language that the old rabbis were used to, but when you give that up, you create something that's never existed before. There has never been a Jewish community, think about what I'm about to tell you, there's never been a Jewish community in history which didn't have its own Yiddish as a primary method of, uh, of um, communication between Jews. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. The Rambam, as you know, was a famous doctor and philosopher. Most of it, any book he wrote for Jews, he wrote in, uh, in Arabic Yiddish, so to speak, Judeo-Arabic. Correct? Um, there's such a thing called Judeo-Italian. Believe it or not, there's a special dialect of Italian in Livorno. I mean, this is really true. There were several different dialects of Jewish in, in Spain. Now, these are countries that are famous where the Jews were acculturated to some degree or another. You see? And in spite of that, it simply meant that when you're out on the street, you speak English. When you're home, you speak Yiddish. This is, you know, is, is, is something that kind of lasted, if it lasted at all, to the Second World War. By the time you get to the 50s, this is gone. Right? The, the younger generation coming up and all that, they don't want, it's just an extra burden, which, which is something that's not interesting. Well, I understand why you do this. I understand why the young ones want to talk French and German and English and whatever the country's language is. That makes perfect sense. But look what you give up. Now, if you compensate for it by heavy investment in religious texts or something like that, but they don't. And so what's the result? As the expression in Yiddish goes, you're bald on this side and you're bald on that side. Right? They don't have this, they don't have that. This is uh, really unprecedented. I'll say it again. You had, throughout history, communities where lots of people were, were, were ignorant, but they all talked that Jewish thing. And therefore, that kept the Jewish thing going, right? They're Judeo-French, you know, they're, they're, you know that's for the linguists to do, Judeo-Iranian. Uh, it's a language we talk among each other, which is no longer the case. It's, uh, it's, it's an overlooked, very important uh, uh, part of all this. Uh, let's move on. Western Europe, which is another large center, is um, 
recovering from World War II by the time of the 50s, Judaism is very weak. Oh boy. It's a strong left, it's a weak center, and there's almost no right. That's the way it works out. Right? We're talking about the years, the first half of the 50s. It's a strong left, it's getting stronger. It's a weak center. Uh, the center was never powerfully strong there, but it was, it, was, it was a traditionalism, just like I was telling you. But the Yiddish and all that is gone, and there's no right, basically speaking, not a Judaically, not religiously. But the largest community in the early 50s is France, which has a quarter of a million. A lot of them came after the Second World War, a quarter of a million, but so Judaically anemic, it's ridiculous. You understand? The French Jews, by and large, of course there's exception everywhere, by and large, you know, nothing about, they're, they're, they're gallicizing expression, they're totally in the French and the, in the intermarriage and the, and the engagement, you know, so many powerful intellectuals emerge in French culture who are of Jewish origins after the Second World War. They know nothing about Jewish, and they couldn't care less about it. It's really sad. I mean, some of the brilliant types out there, um, I'll just give you one name off the top of my head. He just uh, died not long ago, Jacques Derrida, you know, who's the founder of postmodernism, all the rest. Of it. He's, totally, he's a very smart guy, totally interested in all the French and European stuff, zero interest in anything Jewish whatsoever. That's uh, so characteristic of France. It's a golden age in the political sense. Certainly it's a golden age in France compared to now. Now it's bad, right? You don't want to be in France now. At that time, you didn't have, this is before the Muslim immigration. So if you're Jewish, not going to bother you on the street. You understand? So it's a golden age in that regard, in secular terms. Now it's provided you're talking about the Jew as a secular French citizen and civil rights. As a matter of fact, the famous... Uh, the most famous French prime minister of the Fourth Republic is, is Jewish, Pierre Mendes-France. Uh, he's the guy that, that got France out of Vietnam. Do you remember that France used to rule into China? Before America got plundered in Vietnam, France did. Isn't that true? And they couldn't get out of it. And when he became, the, he was head of the radical uh, Democrat Party, something like that, and he said, uh, I'm going to do it. It took him a year and he got him out. Right? And he said, if you want, I'll get you out of Algeria, which turned into another Vietnam for them, and they, wouldn't, they, they threw him out. So he was a very significant politician. A country like France as a Jewish prime minister? Yeah, if you're willing to totally sever your Jewish stuff and totally identify, and he did, you know, totally identify like Leon Blum with the French side of things and totally embrace the French secular culture, then you're acceptable. Um, Western Europe, Europe in general um, has a politically correct sympathy for Jewry in the wake of the Holocaust, provided it's acculturated, assimilated, and not too Jewish. And provided you don't ask too many questions about what the politicians were doing during the Second World War. Because I told you before, lots and lots of politicians in France and Holland and, uh, you know, Italy, all these places, what did you do in the war? That Don't ask that question, you know. Ask what's for dinner. <laughs> ask what I plan to do now, right? Look, I'm voting for Israel, so shut up. This is very common. I'm voting for Israel, right? And by the way, Israel will say like this, he's voting for Israel, shut up. <laughs> well, what choice, do we have a choice? We are who we are. You know, we, we, we'll take whatever friends you can get. True or not? And so this is very characteristic of, of Western Europe in the post-World War II period. France, at the time I'm talking about, has not yet begun to experience the huge Sephardic immigration which will transform the, uh, the, 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 the French scene. And then today, the, 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 there were a quarter million Jews, um, Ashkenazim, living in France in the first half of the 50s. A half a million will come from Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco afterwards. So in other words, the French population will triple, and the new ones will not be French Jews of that type, they'll be French Jews of the wrong type, you know, Sephardic and too Jewish and all the rest of it. And what will they do? Will they push things to the left or to the right? They'll push things to the, to the right. Sephardic Jews will come 
and they'll go to a synagogue in Marseille, which has an organ or something, yes, according to the modern Orthodox, I said before, they said, what's an organ doing over here? And, you know, they'll, and they'll get rid of it. So you see, that way is going. On the other hand, uh, there will be a huge, and there is a huge uh, assimilation, even among the Sephardim, but not as intense as it is among the Ashkenazim. So, you know, to study French Jewry is sometimes a uh, depressing, uh, I can just tell you personally, it's like a depressing uh, prospect. The wars against the, uh, the French have against the Vietnam, they also have these wars in the 50s against the North African territories that are trying to break away from France. In the 1800s and early 1900s, the French took over um, Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. That's a big area, okay? And they had a big chunk of Africa besides that. Now, actually, this was good for the Jews. You tell me. Were the Jews going to live better under a Muslim government or live under the French government, as bad as the French government is? So, well, it is what it is. So, um, after the Second World War, by the 50s, there's um, resistance wars, um, revolutionary wars, you know what I'm talking about, anti-colonial wars being waged all along over here. So that means that France is fighting the Muslims. This uh, generates a certain amount of sympathy for Israel and French culture, because Israel is beating up the Arabs and killing the Muslims. You understand? And the French are the French. So you get this, right? Is this Paris Match, the number one uh, the, you know, magazine in France? And who's the hero on the cover? Moshe Dayan. Uh, it's not today. In France, it's all pro-Palestinian. Okay? France went through a Israel craze in the 50s, which I'll talk about later on when we, when we get to the politics of it, not tonight. The rest of Western Europe outside of France is a sad spectacle, as I said before. Um, whatever communities were there were killed out by Hitler, usually not replaced by immigration after war. I'll just give you an example. Take Holland, the Netherlands. There used to be 150,000 Jews in Holland. By the time Hitler's finished, there's like 10, 15,000, something like that. Uh, at the most. It's, it's, it's unbelievable, you see? Uh, Belgium, Italy, all these countries have the same kind of numbers over there and not really replaced by post-war immigration in any kind of large degree. And so they wither into the small communities that are anemic in the ways that I said before. In that kind of environment, you're not going to have an intense Jewish culture. Um, it is what it is. You, know, so you might have pockets here or there of Jews. Today, Israelis have moved here, so it's a, little bit, it's a, it's a new day. Sometimes religious Israelis, sometimes not religious Israelis, or people, you know, or there's been a Sephardic immigration, sometimes in different countries in Europe, and they're usually holding up this story. I was in Italy. Believe me, if enough were the Libyan and the uh, Iranian Jews who've immigrated into Italy, forget about it. You know, the later you could, you could close the, the, turn off the light in the shoal. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a sad, uh, you know, situation when a community's numbered in 100 or 200. So you, it can't last. The numbers aren't there. Um, and so Western Europe does not recover uh, what it was before the Second World War. Before the Second World War, Western Europe was an interesting place that had, and sometimes... In, in, in Holland and in Belgium and certainly in Germany, of course, and, uh, and in other countries, too, surprisingly, they had small, sometimes vigorous Jewish communities, and that's gone, and it's, and it's never been uh, replaced. So the Jewish people, you see over here, have a funny outlook depending how you go in, um, in country to country. Europe does not have a baby boom. Let me explain what I mean. The USA had literally the baby boom after the Second World War. You know, that's where you get the expression baby boom, isn't it? Then the GIs came home, and everybody wanted to have a, a large family, large family by today's standards, right? And uh, the GI Bill and get a job and all the rest of that's great. Part, this would happen among the non-Jews and this would happen among the Jews as well. But it's a bubble. You know, it lasted, what, for 10, 15 years, most after the war, the Ozzy and Harriet, the Kufa, and then it's over. Right? And then it's over. And then you go back to no population growth, you know, one child or two. And Europe never went through a baby boom. Western Europe, they, they stuck to it, the one-child uh, policy, and they still do, which is why the population over there is shrinking. 
In order to keep the population, I always like to do this. How many, how many babies do you need to keep it steady, even population? Well, you need, you need three in, in real terms. You need two and two and a half. See, you know, but there's no such thing as a half, so you need three. You know why? You, every, you'll say like this. Every time you have two, you have two, right? But not every child, for one reason or another, can have children, will have children, this and that and the other. You know, so you, demographically, they'll tell you you need you know, two point something. So in other words, just to stay even, not to have population growth, you need three. That's it. And, and that does not happen in, in, in Europe. So uh, you can see where the population trends. The one exception to what I'm saying is Antwerp, which is kind of funny, in Belgium, which uh, had been a fairly large community, a very intensely religious community before the Second World War, and a lot of Polish DPs from uh, religious, Hasidic even, uh, will uh, immigrate about 10,000, uh, 12,000, which is a lot for Jews, will go to the port of Antwerp, and that will be a, uh, the exception. Right? That's the one place in Europe in which it looks like Europe before the war. Okay? And uh, Antwerp has remained that to, to some degree. It's the only shtetl in Western Europe, as they say. Um, but that's not enough to, to generate a trend. The largest concentration of European Jews in the 1950s is still in Eastern Europe, even after Hitler. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and they're under communist domination. There's a half a million in Eastern Europe, and there's two to three million in Russia, in the USSR. Okay? Unfortunately, they're under these guys. Okay? But it is what it is. We have now the strange phenomenon that even after Hitler, one quarter of Claudius Rowe lives in tyrannical conditions, cut off from contact with other Jews, and subject to constant systematic attacks on Judaism by the authorities. Wait a minute. That was, that's supposed to be before the Second World War. All that's supposed to change after the war. Uh-uh. I mean, we all know this. We're old enough. Most of us here are old enough to remember. It's not that long ago. Uh, it was strange. Three quarters of the Jews in the world live in conditions of perfect freedom. Live in Israel, live in America, live in Canada, in the British Commonwealth, in Europe, wherever you go. You know, you can live freedom. And then there's one quarter, that's a lot, where it's, it's like, you know, the Middle Ages or something. Like, wait a minute, this is the 50s, this is the 60s, this is the 70s, this is the 80s. But it wasn't like that, was it? Okay? It's, it's strange you have this. Um, now, Eastern Europe, there was some emigration to Israel in the 1950s. For example, the 1956 Polish deal, which they, they don't show here. Here's the uh, number two guy in the Polish communist government, and here's the head of Romania for many years. This guy was a ruthless dictator. He wouldn't rise to the top anyway, but he didn't mind letting Jews out, provided they pay him, and in his time, they didn't pay that much. He was too dumb to ask a big price. The guy after him, Ceausescu, when he took over, he jacked up the price. Is, 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 well, let me ask you a question. Did we pay? Right? Did Israel pay? No, Israel got the, the money from overseas. But would you, do you regret giving money to get it somebody else? You don't regret it. Right? It is what it is. Wait a minute. I thought ransoming of captives went out with the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century. No. Right? It's, it's still there in the 1980s, isn't it? And um, Berman uh, sounds Jewish, doesn't it? That's because he is. Uh, Jacob Berman was the number two guy, unbelievably ruthless. Stalin put him in as number two guy. What does that tell you? His brother is a member of the Knesset and the Mapam. So it's one of those novels of the 20th century. You know, family starts here. It's a classic novel from my youth, right? You know, you have three brothers. One goes to America, one goes to Israel, one goes to the communists, and they meet years later or they don't, you know what I'm saying. Um, well, you want to know? I'll tell you something. Uh, he was a communist all the rest of it, but he's in Poland. It's after the Holocaust. He's not unaware of that. And so thanks to him, He's not the only one, of course, but thanks to him a lot. Um, it's not hard to get out of Poland if you want to go to Israel. 
It's hard to get out of Poland if you want to go to America. But if you want to make an Aliyah, especially if you have relatives over there, and what Polish Jew does not have relatives in Israel? Um, then, then you can go legally. And the Poland doesn't even charge you a lot of money. It's kind of, no, they, they, they had a certain guilty conscience, which is a good thing. And just to give you one example, people don't know this, although it's not a secret, in 1956, listen to this, in 1956, Poland and Israel made a deal, Israel, Poland and Israel made a deal as follows. There were 56,000 Jews, uh, Polish, who were stuck in Russia in the Second World War in Stalin's time. Okay? So you know what that means. They ran away from the German army, or they were there for one reason or another, and they were in the USSR in Stalin's time. For one reason or another, these 56,000 Jews were not able to exit the USSR and go to communist Poland after the Second World War. They're stuck in Russia. Maybe they're working in a factory where they need them. Maybe they were in a prison camp. Maybe they were, who knows? You're talking about Stalin over here. Uh, so there they are. Now the Second World War is over. It's 10 years later. And um, the Soviet authorities now say that these 56,000 Jews, who really are Polish in background, if they wish to, they can go to communist Poland. And they do. Communist Poland tells Israel, we have 56,000 Jews coming here. Israel says, we'll take them all. And they do. And so that's a significant immigration. Over 50,000 Jews will come out of communist Poland to go to the state of Israel in 56 and 57, even though it's a communist country and Israel is not a communist country, all the rest of it. And it's not, I, I don't want to over-romanticize it all due to one guy, but he is number two over there, number three. You see? And so it is what it is. And the idea goes that even among the hard-bitten communists, in Poland anyway, the Jews have been through so much, all the rest of it, the heck would have let them go to Israel. So I'm just sharing with that with you to show you that if you live in Eastern Europe, especially in the 50s, it's not totally the Iron Curtain, as, as people think. It substantially is the Iron Curtain, but there are ways not to go to America, I repeat, but to go to Israel, because Israel is a special case, and everybody knows, in the 50s anyway, that Israel is where the DPs are going, and they're rebuilding their lives, and all the rest of it. And the communists, to a certain degree, at least in the satellite countries, buy into this, and there is a possibility, as I said before, for uh, some progress in that regard but there's no immigration from the USSR. Stalin, the worst thing you can do is, a, is, is there two, here's the worst thing and the second worst thing. The worst thing you can do is have a relative apply for you to get out. The second worst thing is you to apply to get out. Because either way, you're dead. Okay? This is the Stalin estate. I don't have to tell you more about that. When, this is a famous episode in Soviet history. Soviet history. That when the war was over, and the Russian people suffered so much, and they fought so hard, and there was so much bloodshed. I mean, 25 million soldiers killed, another 25, 35 million civilians killed, plus the ones that Stalin shot. You know, they went through such a, a river of blood, all the rest of it, and they proved their patriotism and their loyalty to the Communist Party and to the regime, and they all fought in Berlin saying, along with Stalin, and they did all this. So everybody in Russia was convinced that the harsh conditions that had characterized Soviet life prior to the Second World War would now be changed, and they called it the thaw. They said, now it's going to be a thaw. Winter was winter, and now it'll be a thaw. And everybody figured, look, Hitler's gone. The existential threat to the Soviet Union is gone. Uh, maybe before the war, you needed to work 24 hours, 48 hours and 24 to build up against the German invasion, but now the Germans are wiped out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Wrong, right? Uh, Stalin wasn't built that way. He, not at all. He said, uh, the war is over, and now we get ready for the next one. Right? And so they did not get rid of the rationing, the terrible rationing, even after the Second World War is over. And they didn't get rid of the harsh conditions. And you're talking about Stalin. It's not like America. So people aren't getting their checks. There's not enough food at the table. Not under Stalin. Right? Nobody's saying a word if you want to stay alive. You see? And so there is no uh, thaw over there. Uh, the Goyim hope for a thaw, so you say? 
the Jews did. The Jews hoped that, once again, they were such loyal Soviet citizens in the Second World War, obviously they're against Hitler. They played him such an important role often in the, in the Second World War. There were a lot of German, excuse me, a lot of Jewish generals and officers. You can see them today, some of these guys, with a whole rows of medals. They're not just bought in some store, you know. They're one in the battlefield. And, um, and Jews played significant roles in the science and all the other development of the Soviet Union. And uh, so they figured after the war's over, there'll be a thaw in the anti-Jewish atmosphere. Boy, were they stupid. And it was fatal. In fact, Stalin in the Second World War set up what he called the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, that they should make propaganda among the American Jews to help them support the Soviet Union in the war. Because after all, it is a fact, you can't deny it, that the Red Army was on the side of the Jews. Agreed? No, they're killing Hitler. You know, you know if you look at it that way, uh, you can't deny it. Who liberated Auschwitz? Not that they're nice people. Who liberated Auschwitz? You can't deny it. It's the Red Army. You know, that kind of a thing. So they figured uh, the war's over. We should keep the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee going. And they wrote to Stalin to sort of lobby him. You don't lobby Stalin. Anybody lobby Stalin gets killed. And they all got killed. You understand? Not only that, made him start thinking, oh, the Jews are getting uppity over here. And he thought they want to set up an independent state in the Crimea. And he caught all kinds of ideas in his mind. And the establishment of the state of Israel only aggravates this. Everybody knows the story that Golden Mayor goes to Moscow in 1948 and 100,000 Jews greet her in the street. And it's not that far from the Kremlin. And therefore Stalin hears about this. And whoa, in 1948, after I've been in office for 20 years, there's still a big Jewish thing over here. And he begins his little plans as he did over there to make big plans. And obviously the point was that um, the years 48 to 53, were a silent secret war against the Jews on the part of the Soviet government. They fired Jews right and left. Uh, starting in the after post-war period, it reaches a crescendo in 48, 49, 50, 51, and 52. Um, many Jews are arrested on all kinds of charges. Um, you know, you don't have to be guilty over there. And uh, they say, you know, this is still controversial. The historians are debating this back and forth. But if they say he was getting ready to kill all the Jews in Russia, or let's put it this way, in the Stalinist way, round them all up, send them to Siberia, and let them figure out what to do on their own. That's, that's another way of doing it. He did this to the Tatars, to the Chechens, and many other peoples, so it's not at all beyond him to do, and the Jews are not as hardy as, the, as those types, and who knows what would have happened. Fortunately, he dropped dead, right, in, the, in, in February of 53. That, no, that, that, that is, that's what did it. So here we're talking about the Jewish world in 53. His death was clearly Yeshua. That's why they always tried, it was around Purim time, everybody tried to say Stalin died on Purim, we got the stroke on Purim or something like that, because it's like that, you understand? And I've spoken to relatives of mine and other Soviet Jews and, 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 and all the rest of it, when Stalin died, there was like a giant thing fell off their back, because they really were expecting, I mean, this is not funny at all, they're expecting a knock on the door in the middle of the night anytime, you know, for all the Jews. And just to be let alone, and, not that they're, and, and they're not going to kill you, they're not going to arrest you. No matter what else they do to you, you already feel like you're in a, in, a, in, in a paradise park. You understand? Just to be able to breathe. And that's what happened after Stalin's death. Uh, because when Stalin dies, eventually there's a power struggle, but as I'm sure we all know, Khrushchev takes over. Uh, for the Goyim, there's a thaw. This is famous in Soviet history. It's called the thaw. There's a famous play that was written in 1953 called The Thaw, which was about, uh, you know, wasn't directly about it. All the Russians knew what it's about. And um, I'm sure you must be aware that by 1956, Khrushchev gives a famous speech in which he denounced Stalin. You know, he said, there is no God. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, what was his, by the way, what was his denunciation of Stalin about? Stalin did terrible things. He killed a lot of loyal communists, right? He never criticized him killing other people. 
But he had named one after another. He said, this guy was killed and it wasn't fair. He was a good communist. And that guy was killed and it wasn't right. They were good communists. And this group was hurt and they weren't out planning to do anything at the state. All the other tens of millions of people, that's collateral damage. But, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the <laughs> there's a famous story. I don't know if it's true or not, but he used to tell it. Khrushchev was not Stalin's number two man. So while he's giving his whole speech denouncing Stalin, somebody shouted out from the audience, a huge audience, he says, and where were you? When all this was going on. And Cruz just said, who said that? And it's absolutely silent. He said, that's where I was. <laughs> now, Khrushchev, who takes over, becomes the most important person after Stalin, was very anti-Semitic. That's who he was. He was a Stalinist disregard. Like I say, it's funny. He definitely saw that it wasn't right to persecute the Russian people the way Stalin did. He, but he doesn't have such issues about Jews. Um, and so uh, it's funny. He was a big anti-Semite, personally, from his background, but as a Leninist, he can't admit it. Because Lenin, who's the god in, in the Soviet Union, that's the next one. Is it? Okay. So forget, I guess that's not Lenin. He says, uh, anyway, Le Lenin was on record as being very, in principle, opposed to anti-Semitism. Now understand this well, Lenin had no problem shooting people to go to show. But if you're Jewish, like Hitler, you know, if you're, just because you're Jewish, that's not right to persecute somebody. somebody. As long as someone goes along with communism, that's fine. And the Jews in Russia said, we're communists, we'll do whatever he wants, just don't hurt us. You see? And so um, Khrushchev can't say, let's have a pogrom or something, even if we'd like to. That's the type of guy he was. Uh, so funny, it's, it, it's funny, the situation in the Soviet Union. Uh, rather, the situation is like this. Talk to Khrushchev. Russia's a paradise, and no Jew wants to go to lousy Israel. And any Jew who says he wants to go to leave paradise will end up in Siberia. You understand? Know I mean, you know, it's that kind of old-fashioned Russian stupid thing. These verbal and mental hoops reflect this conflicted Soviet attitude towards the Jewish people, which goes back to Catherine the Great. Because the Jews came part of Russia when Catherine the Great in the 1700s conquered Poland. There were no Jews in Russia before her. Jew was not allowed to live in Russia. It was considered that it would be contaminable. It would be Tomei, the land of Russia, which is Torah. This is true. You know, the Empress Elizabeth, the, her predecessor, said, I would rather be cast naked in the snow in front of my enemies than have the, uh, the benefit of even a penny from the killers of Christ. You understand? No, but that's the total, typical Russian. Even Peter the Great, who did so many things, he said, I can change Russia. I can't let any Jews in. That's impossible. And Catherine the Great, they took over Poland. They ended up with a booby prize of the largest and most intensely Jewish community in the world. And Russia has never figured out what to do about it. Because on the one hand, if you let them alone, the Jews will take over the country, they feel. They're all smart. They'll be all the doctors and lawyers. They'll take over the government. And who knows what? On the other hand, if you persecute, they make them revolutionaries and they'll blow up the country like they did in 1917. And so what do you do? And so the Russian government, till today, till Putin, is zigzagging all the time. You know, they have, don't have a steady policy. Should they be nice to the Jews? Should they be against the Jews? Should they uh, have civil discrimination against them? Should they not have civil discrimination? And all the rest of it. Stalin, of course, tried to really purge the Jews. But even Stalin needs... Guys like this, Leif Landau, the Nobel Prize Soviet physicist, the guys who break the A-bomb for Russia and keep the Russians, the Soviets, ahead in the science which they can't afford to fall behind. Because if you're having a Cold War against the United States of America, you better have your science in order, right? Uh, basically, it's going to sound funny what I'm saying, but a large component of the Cold War, if you go to its... This is funny, but I don't mean it to be funny. A, a central core component of the Cold War is America's Jewish geniuses versus the Soviet Jewish geniuses. I'm talking about the scientists who create the, the big weapons. Then you get the other people to, to, to use the weapons. But these are the guys. Here's, I mean, come on, <laughs> right? Who, who built the A-bomb and, and, and launched the American 
scientific revolution that made this country the number one country in the world, which has remained until today, ever since the Second World War. Uh, what did these three guys have in common? They all have ties. No, I mean, you know, what, what, okay? You understand? I mean, come on. Um, and so, uh, you, you're going to laugh. I'll show you a story. You won't believe it. Go to the next one. Here's Eisenhower with, with all America's top it's, it's, it's a presidential uh, advisory committee, scientific advisory committee. Eisenhower himself said, there's like 14 people, 14 scientists in the picture, something like this. He said, I know we have a minion here. <laughs> okay? In fact, the, the chairman of Eisenhower's advisory, scientific advisory committee, a guy he held from a lot, was the famous Colombian professor Isidore Isaac Rabbi, or Rabbi to be exact. But if you, if you he, and, and Isidore Isaac Rabbi, this is not true, but he told Time Magazine once, he says, I'm a descendant of the author of the Mishnah, because <laughs> his name was Rabbi, you know. So I'm just saying, well, Russia need, well, I'll, I'll tell you right now. The difference is Khrushchev won't take a picture with a bunch of Jews, but they got them, right? And they hoard them. So you, could, you know, it's a funny business. Me, myself and I, my uncle, because uh, families get impacted by the 20th century. So my father got out of Russia in the time of the Russian Revolution. But I had an uncle who didn't. And he ended up being in Russia and becoming a big a geophysicist, a biggie. And he was in Leningrad. And when World War, um, how big was he? He said, when, 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 uh, when World War II broke out and the German army is attacking all the way up to, to Moscow and Leningrad, Stalin pulls the whole um, uh, school there, that uh, Institute for Advanced Geophysical Studies, and puts them in central Russia to, keep, to protect them. Not because he's Jewish, in spite of the fact he's Jewish. You understand? Uh, so there's a perfect example of the fact that when the war's over, they bring them back over there and say, produce, give us something we can use in the Cold War. And they do, because what's the alternative? You see? And there you have it. That's the fate of the Jew as late as the 1920s. The only difference is these guys want to do it, <laughs> right? No, I mean, it. they want, they want to, to do it because America is a liberal country and the democracy and all the rest of it. The ones in Russia say they want to do it. <laughs> so life is strange, as I said before, over here. Um, this, f f as far as the Soviet Jews are concerned, especially in the 50s and the 60s, before there's an outbreak of the Refusnik feeling, this is before all that happens, this is before the 67 war, uh, that the, the Soviet Jews feel like the classic story from Aesop's fable and from the Talmud of the stork that stuck his head in the lion's uh, mouth to pull out the bone. Well, he said, you're lucky, you know, we, we're glad we stuck our head in the mouth of the lion, we're still alive. And the fact that we're in Russia and we're not getting killed or sent to Siberia or something like that, that's a, a, you know, something that you should bench Gomel for every day. It was a very, very tough sort of thing. They do not, in the 1950s, want to explore their Jewish identity. That is the road to perdition. It's sad. It's very sad, what I'm saying. It's about three million people. And of course, it depends. Those who are living out in outlying regions don't matter so much, so the Soviet authorities don't look there. But if you live in Russia, Russia, and in places where they care, it's tough. You don't want to go to shul. You get in trouble. You don't want to you know, be associated with Jewish ceremonies. You get in trouble. And who wants to get in trouble? I mean, you, you can't blame them. Still, it becomes increasingly difficult in the USSR to maintain its progressive image, which it tries to have in the Cold War, and still oppress the Jews to close down their synagogues and printing presses and things like that. It's not like the Chechens or the Mingrillians, who no one ever heard of and never Russians could persecute all they want. There are Jews all over the world, particularly in America. They got big mouths, they control the media, they always ask Khrushchev at the press conferences about the Jews, which drives Khrushchev crazy. This is true. The Jews won't go along with the Potemkin village approach that everything's great. Here, in 1956, the RCA was allowed by the Soviets after a lot of pr uh, pressure, the Rabbinical Council of America, Orthodox Rabbinical Council of America, led by Rabbi Herschel Schechter, that's J.J. Schechter's father, not Herschel Schechter now, of course, 
Uh, in fact, he recently passed away, I think. So Rabbi Hershel is after. Uh, there's an RCA group that they visit Russia, they go to Khrushchev, they go all the place over here. This is a very sad scene. They're visiting the chief rabbi of Moscow. Chief rabbi of Moscow, Rabbi Schleifer. He was the son-in-law of Rabbi Rhinus. Many of you heard? This is the RCA. Rabbi Rhinus founded the Mizrahi. He's the founder of the, of the religious Zionist movement. And there's a famous Talmud Chacham in Lithuania and all the rest of it. And his son-in-law was Rabbi Schleifer. He is the one who's the rabbi of the synagogue in Moscow. Uh, he's a, so that makes him the chief rabbi of Moscow. Uh, he's a from guy. I mean, you know, this is not a fake. No, no, I'm serious. No, no, listen to what I'm saying. It's not a fake. He's a from guy. What does he have to do to survive under Stalin? What does he have to do to survive under Khrushchev? It's like living in Inquisition. It's very sad. He has to say whatever the government tells him to say. So these guys, everybody, it's, it's one of these dialogues of the deaf. The RCA comes in and they say, how's the chinuch of here? Great. How's the costume situation? No problem. What do you, what do you want them to do? They're, 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 besides everything else, there are KGB agents in there. You, if you're American sitting here in a show in Baltimore, Maryland, a free country, you can't imagine what it's like. Maybe somebody's been in the USSR can imagine what it's like. It's like stepping back in Jewish history 500 years. And this is not. This is 1956. You see? And they say, do you want us to send you Sidurim? No, we have printing press over here. Everything's fine. Uh, what is the biggest problem facing the Jews in the world today? Israeli expansionism. You know. what's, it, no, what's, he, you what's he supposed to say? And I want to tell you something. If you're, if this is a little bit later. I remember as a child, um, the chief rabbi, his successor, because he died a year later, his successor was Rabbi Levin. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Um, and also from Guy and all this kind of stuff, trying to do the best he could. And the Russians sent him to show a, a, a public face to America in 1968, the Soviet Jewry activists boycotted him, and they um, uh, picketed and things like this. And I remember, you know, Rabotcha Feinstein, the other side goes, let the guy alone. You know, what are you, what are you, what are you crazy? Well, he's, you kid, he, he's doing the best he can. This is not somebody to, to, to beat up on. It's the opposite. He's, he's a, like a, a, a certain martyr, you see? Now, why do you have martyrs in 1956? Welcome to the crazy 20th century. There you have it. During the years 53 to 56, the Soviet uh, leadership is in flux. It wasn't clear which one of these guys take over. Eventually, he knocked these other guys out. He didn't kill them, so that makes it different than Stalin. Um, Soviet thinking is to some extent in flux also. Uh, in these years, Khrushchev denounces Stalin, as I said before, and it wasn't 100% clear what they'll do with the Jews. But it didn't turn out good in the end. Had they been wise, now pay close attention to what I'm going to say now. Had they been wise, the Soviets would have let the Jews go, whoever wanted, and Lance de Boyle. But Khrushchev wasn't built like that. He thawed a little bit. He had thawed a little bit. And uh, he and his leaders were incapable of doing more than that. This is very typical of Russian history. They liberalize a little bit, and then they freak out, and they can't do any more. After 1956, what I just described to you are the best years for the Jews in the Soviet Union. It's ironic. After 1956, the Soviet attitude and policy hardened. It became a cultural thing. This part of the Soviet leadership is Russian, and they're anti-Semitic Russian, and that's just who they are. Uh, Dobrynin, the famous Russian ambassador who was here for 30 years, said in his memoirs, he said, the number one mistake we made was bothering the Jews. And he's speaking as a Russian who's a Gentile, strictly from a cold Russian calculation. Because he said, what do we need this for? You understand? It's like they should have not bothered them and let them go if they went to have a synagogue and the heck We would have spared ourselves so much trouble and it wouldn't have hurt any essential interest of the Soviet state. You see? Um, he, he blamed this on the heavy heritage, heritage of Stalin, which is very typical. It wasn't my fault, it was his. Um, Russia obsesses on the Jews. I remember reading a number of years ago something that really surprised me. Brezhnev, 
When he was there, they had a meeting in 1972, and the, and the, and the, the um, minutes have now leaked out. The whole meeting was about how much matzah is being made in Russia, and what does this do in terms of activating the national sentiments of the Jews. Can you believe this? In the Politburo, in the Kremlin, they were worried about the matzah. It's actually very interesting, you know, uh, somebody wants to give a whole speech on, on Pesach, about the Kayach of Mitzvahs, you know, <laughs> you can do a lot with that. But it's amazing, that, you know, this, that, in 1972, it shows you it's an obsession and a craziness when it comes to Jewish questions, which clouds your ability to, to, to see real, right? Um, Russia does obsess on the Jews, and they violated the famous dictum of George Washington. What did he say? He said, execution such a plan, nothing more essential, that permanent, inveterate antipathies against particular nations and passionate attachments for others should be excluded. A country should never be guided by ahava or sinna, love or hatred to other nations. Be calm and objective. George Washington wrote this. And that in place of them, a just and amicable feelings to all should be cultivated. The nation which indulges towards another nation an habitual hatred or habitual fondness is to some degree a slave. Isn't that amazing? It is a slave to its animosity or its affection, either of which is sufficient to lead it astray from its duty and interest. George Washington was a smart guy. And this totally applies to what I'm talking about over here. If the Russians wouldn't be so fixated in a cultural sense on the Jewish thing, they would see normal, they would have done a lot better than they, than they did. Uh, by contra- um, One second. On the other hand, this is very bad. To counter the Jewish threat, as they saw it, the KGB starting in the 50s and the 60s and 70s especially, fans the flames of anti-Semitism around the world, particularly in the Muslim world, laying the groundwork for the current virulent wave of anti-Semitism that is sweeping so much of the world. Here's a book that came out recently. If you're interested, I recommend you read it. This is by General Pesepa, who was the head of the Romanian KGB, if you remember this. He's the highest-ranking communist guy to uh, defect to the West in Jimmy Carter's time. He was the head, the number one guy in the KGB, and he wrote a whole book now. It's a very interesting book. And it's got this and that and the other in it. And he was in the middle with Khrushchev and all these guys. You know, They were all in, in the room together. And one of the things they're doing is uh, printing and manufacturing, distributing like crazy copies of the Protocols, Elders of Zionism and similar things deliberately all over the world in order to spread a certain type of cancer. And my friends, we know, it was very successful. And uh, re- read the book. That's all I can say. By contrast, the current Russian leader... He's a lot smarter. <laughs> Look at Putin. He doesn't mind kissing up to Lubavitch and all the rest of it. Why? Uh, no, no, I'll tell you why. He understands what I just told you. He understands George Washington. He looks at a cold cal- uh, calculation and he says, Soviet Union was so powerful. Why did they screw up? We made a number of mistakes. Maybe economically, maybe this, that, another. One of the mistakes, not the only, one of the mistakes he made was the Jews. It wasn't necessary to do this with the Jews. Russia can pursue her international thing, you know, her interests, and try to dominate the world in whatever they want, and you don't have to go and beat up on the, on the Jews. Get it? He's not doing because he likes them. He's doing as a matter of cold policy, trying to, tr- trying to learn the lessons of the past. So in conclusion, by the 50s, it was clear that no Jewish community outside, perhaps of Israel, was interested in the cultural losses of the show with the destruction of the Jewish cultural homeland, because with the destruction of Eastern Europe, that was a Jewish cultural homeland. Instead, everybody was focused on personal survival. I can understand why, but actually, that doesn't help for the American Jews and the other Jews who weren't in the war. Nobody thought of picking up uh, to replace the powerful Jewish cultural center, even if you don't want to be religious. Powerful Jewish cultural center that once existed in Eastern Europe, American Jews just wasn't interested in. They're interested in, in you know, making a living and so forth. As a result, 
Ironically, the ground was laid for a Jewish world in which there would be no ideological competition with Torah Judaism. <laughs> Funny, there's one plan, uh, but no one saw this at the time. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.